Ushers, if you'll come forward, we'll share in our offering together this morning. As we do that, let me give you a little update. About three weeks ago, uh, we sent out an email about a roof uh, leaking. And of course, this wasn't the worst winter, summer you could have for a bad roof. Uh, but this, in fact, this summer kind of beat up the roof to the point where it literally was giving way in water in here. So we put a note out and, and one way or the other, we were going to fix the roof, but it wasn't in our budget. So we sent that letter out. Uh, $100,000 was needed. Three weeks. In three weeks, I'm happy to say that that need has been met. But let me tell you a little story behind it. The very first check we got uh, was $1,500 from someone in the church. I happen to know the story. Someone in the church who does not have, does not have much, not a person of great means. Um, and they brought the check, even before he sent an, an email out to anybody, uh, and had this attitude. He said, just breaks my heart, just breaks my heart, water dripping into the church. And went to the bank and said, here's the check. And so we've had, uh, we've had you know, gifts coming in through the past couple of weeks, bigger gifts, small gifts along the way. And then yes, just yesterday, we have an email from a family in our church that sent a note that just said, we're not sure what the balance left is on that account or on, to get the roof done, but we're coming to church tomorrow. We're bringing a check, whatever the balance is, we'll write the check for it. Let's get it fixed. We have roofers coming on Tuesday to get it done because the body of Christ has given together along the way. Job well done, church. And so we're glad for that. So my sincere thanks for seeing the body at work, whether it be roof, whether it be we've got uh, Operation Christmas Child coming up, we've got gift cards we'll be doing, uh, the body responding uh, and doing exactly what the body of Christ is called to do. So my, my thanks for that along the way. Uh, this morning, I was actually going to begin a new series, but decided to wait a week and put that off. Um, let me tell you where I'm heading in a couple of weeks. Uh, I want to invite you uh, to not only be here next Sunday as we begin this next series, but I would really like to encourage encourage you to invite and bring some people with you that you might know. If you know anyone in your life, anyone you've dialogued or talked with that has said things along the way to you like this, well, I lost my faith at one point in time, I believed, but I don't know if I can believe anymore. I've given up on religion. Please invite them to the series, specifically next week, but the next four weeks is we're going to talk about, hey, I lost my faith. Somewhere along the way, I've lost my faith. And we're going to talk about, from Scripture, some, some biblical examples, what to do in those moments and how to walk through that. If you're thinking, well, what about me? I haven't lost my faith. I'm still here. Um, how does it help me? Well, number one, the series will encourage you. If you have never had in a moment in your life or you've been a little wavering in your faith, man, good for you. Um, if you have had those moments or if you think that could happen, the series will help. It will encourage you. It will help you. It will strengthen you for those moments when things do happen where we kind of get beat up along the way with our faith. But specifically, think beyond yourself. Uh, many of us have had conversations with folks where they've said things like, well, I used to believe, I used to be a believer, I used to have faith, I've lost it along the way. Or things like this, you know, my grandmother had faith, I love her faith, but I don't have that. And oftentimes it's because of what they've seen, what they've heard, they've had a bad church experience, they had bad, bad Christian experience, by that meaning some Christians in their life have been horrible people, and so they write off the whole deal. If you know anyone like that, if you've ever had that experience, I want to encourage you, bring them in specifically next week, as next week will be an introduction, which will really, I think, set the platform right and the foundation. Now, please know, 
I, you know my style. I'm not I'm strong-arming anybody. I'm not going to beat anybody up with the gospel. But I want to make a little run at the idea that if you've lost your faith, let's really talk about what that means. And let's use some biblical stories as to how that happens and how we combat the faith. Love to have you bring someone. I think they'll be encouraged, not threatened. Hopefully, you can be a part of that. This week, that's next week. This week, I want to talk about how God heals wounded hearts. Um, so a number of years ago, my son uh, decided he wanted to have a motorcycle. He'd been talking about it and talking about it, and he said, I want to buy a motorcycle. Um, I didn't want him to have a motorcycle. My wife and I didn't want him to have a motorcycle. Uh, you know, safety issues and, you know, all those things. It's a big enough risk out there. You don't need to be on a motorcycle. But the problem is uh, his two brother-in-laws had motorcycles. Those, both those guys had motorcycles. They were good on them. They'd grown up with them, and he wanted a motorcycle. So we're going to get a motorcycle. So, you know, after much debate and dialogue, uh, and he didn't want a big motorcycle. He didn't want a fancy motorcycle. In fact, the motorcycle he wanted was like a, would be considered vintage, uh, a Honda Nighthawk motorcycle. 1993 Nighthawk motorcycle is what we found in New Hampshire. So a couple weeks later, we were making the drive over to New Hampshire, the three of us, uh, my son, son-in-law, and off we went to buy, his, uh, to buy his motorcycle. We found it, got it, brought it home. Actually, it was just Adam and I that went. And uh, so he was driving it and sat in the garage, and he'd be off, and it was summertime, and I'd be out there putzing around, and this thing kept calling my name. Um, I'd be out there working, and it would say, ride me, ride me, you know, it's just, you know, and uh, I'd look at it sitting there, and I'm thinking, ah, I'm not going to ride that thing, and ride me, ride me, he just kept talking to me, and just nonstop. And so he'd be at work, and so, you know, finally one day, I, I took it for a ride around the block. Now, I got to tell you, it wasn't easy, because if you know anything about motorcycles and the Nighthawk, it's, it's meant for people that bend. Uh, <laughs> I don't bend, you know, you, you, you know, you, it took me a while to get on. I have to pack a couple things up, you know, along the way and I'd go for a ride and I kind of felt good. And so it was just, just a short block and then it was like two blocks and then it was the whole block and then it was the neighborhood and a uh, short story, a month later I had my first, I owned my first motorcycle. Um, and so I was telling, we were telling some friends uh, that uh, I'd bought a motorcycle and here's how the conversation went. I said, yes. I said, I hit my midlife crisis. And uh, so I went out and I bought a motorcycle to which she replied, and I quote, midlife, you passed midlife long, long ago. More like end of life. And so what did you buy? One of those adult tricycles? Ouch. Ouch. I mean, that hurt. Now, that was a friend. Now, admittedly, not much of a friend, but a friend. Now, here's the deal. I was a friend, and it was in, it was in jest, and I got that. But let's be honest. Uh, people can say things that hurt. Now, sometimes they'll say it jokingly, and you can get past it. But let's be honest. A lot of times, it's not joking, and it hurts. I've been around for quite a while now in ministry. Let me make some observations for you uh, that I've seen as I have lived and as I have watched people in, in, in life. The first observation is this. Nobody but nobody just sails through life. No one just sails through life. Now, this is kind of important to remember because whenever it is that we're going through hurt, whenever we're going through pain, we all have them. We all have hurts and bumps along the way. But whenever we go through pain and whenever we go through difficulties, we tend to look at everyone else and view them as not having difficulties and we always want to be them. See, whenever I'm going through pain, I want to be you because you don't look like you have pain. 
When I'm going through difficulties, I want to be all the other people because all the other people look like they escape pain in life. So first statement is, there is no one who's trouble-free. No one. Doesn't exist. Second observation I would make to you is this. There is no greater pain than the pain of being hurt by others, specifically hurt by the people that are closest to you. There is no greater pain than that. You can lose a loved one. You can lose a, a spouse, a husband or wife. You can lose a child, and that hurts, no question. Your children can mess up and go through trouble. That hurts, no question. Tragedy can come to your life, and it brings pain. I got it. It hurts. But nothing compares to the pain of rejection. Nothing compares to the pain, the attack by a parent, the attack by a spouse, the attack by a peer or by a friend. Words spoken hurt, and they injure, and they do damage well beyond physical pain, right? We know that to be true. The reality of it is most of us in this room, most of us who are listening online, most of us here today can remember, remember harmful words and painful moments when someone has said something to hurt you. You can remember those words even though it was 20, 30, 40, and 50 years ago, right? Most of us can remember a moment of time when someone did something to hurt us even if it was a history ago. But I've got good news for you. Listen to this in Psalm 147.3. He heals, referring to God. God heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Now, I admittedly, binding wounds I get. You know, I got cut, I can bandage it, I can wrap it. I'm a parent and we all know as parents that binding up broken hearts is really, really difficult, if not impossible. Now, broken bones we can fix, you know. We got cuts, we can tape them up and bandage them. Even, even we've had kids in our family break bones where the, you know, arm's going the wrong way. You can get that reset and, you know, get that back into order. But the broken heart, how many parents have, have prayed and hoped and wished that they could heal their kid's broken heart? And then how about our own broken hearts? No, that's a little bit harder. So if you're like me, I read a verse where it says that God heals the brokenhearted, and I kind of go, how does he do that exactly? As a parent, I wouldn't mind knowing. But even as a person, I think, how exactly does God heal the broken heart? How does God, how is he able to bind the wounds of words? Now, a side note for you, some of you believe the only way that you'll have healing is if whoever's hurt you has said they're sorry. Some of you believe the only way that you'll get past the pain, if whoever it is that hurt you or harmed you, comes to you and says, I'm so wrong, and they make this, you know, this great statement, and they'll never do it again. But I have to tell you, if you believe that, then you're probably going to be in pain most of your life. Because our being healthy and whole is not contingent upon whether they do something or not, whether they say they're sorry or not, whether they act accordingly. It's not based on that. God is the one who says that he heals broken hearts and it's not contingent upon what other people do. God is the one who does it. Well, how exactly does he do that? Listen very carefully. Here's the statement as we start. God heals wounded hearts by changing the way that you think. That's how, that's how he does it. God does his work by changing the way that you think. Look at this verse in Romans chapter 12. I'm sure it's familiar to many of you. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. But now look at that same passage in a little different translation. I love this New Living Translation. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. How? By changing the way that you think. By changing the way that you think. Now, this passage, Romans 12, chapter 2, I've preached from it many, many times in in my life. This passage has two major applications, if you will. One is spiritual. When he talks about don't be conformed to this pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, there's clearly a spiritual application, how to grow up spiritually, how to be mature spiritually. That is one application. But there's a second application where I'm going to look at it today, which is how to be, how God uses his, his work in our lives to bring about emotional healing. How, bring, take, how God uses our, uh, his grace in our lives to bring about emotional maturity, getting beyond some of the hurts and pains of life. Now, some of you would say, well, why would you choose that road versus the spiritual road, if you will, by application? Because of this, because I've never in all my years of pastor ministry, I've never seen one, seen one who is spiritually mature who is not emotionally mature. And oftentimes what I find is it's the emotional maturity, it's the emotional pain, it's the emotional hurt, which is a major stumbling block to spiritual growth. So I want to talk this morning about how God heals wounded hearts. How God heals and changes us by changing the way that you think. So here's my starting point for you, my starting statement. If you would want to heal from the hurts and the words of other people in your life, Or this statement, if you would like to get to a place where people's words and people's feelings towards you can't hurt you anymore. Now stop right there. Wouldn't you like that? Maybe you don't have a huge history of of issues, but wouldn't you like to be in a place where people's words in your life, people's opinions about you, the things they might say or do towards you, how would you like to be in a place where they no longer have an effect on you? If you'd like to say, yeah, I want that, then you need to change the way that you think. And to do that, we start by asking the question, how does God think about us? You see, I think the answer, and I don't want to be flippantly easy in this, but I think the answer is, if we're going to change the way that we think, we begin to start thinking about us the way God thinks about us. How does God see us, and how does God think about us? So this morning, I want to give you five things. I want to give you five things that God knows about you, five things God sees in you. Five things that God believes about you, that if you begin thinking like God thinks about you, it'll radically change you. Here's the first one. Here's what God knows about you. God knows that you are acceptable. God sees you as acceptable. Now, that's pretty important because, quite honestly, most of us will spend our entire lives trying to be accepted by someone. This is a very good starting point, seeing that most of us are going to spend our entire lives trying to be accepted, being accepted by family, by coworkers, by team workers, by whatever. See, a lot of us think this idea of being accepted is just trying to be accepted as a child by our parents, trying to earn my parents' approval. You are wrong. You will spend your whole life trying to be accepted by the people around you. If you think this being accepted thing is just for the children, all you've got to do is stop and begin to look at the way you think, the way that you act, the way that you talk, the way that you dress, and the people around you, and you will quickly find that you are desperately trying to fit into whatever that group or crowd is. Even those of us who say we are not, we absolutely are. Our desire to be accepted is behind many of the things that we do in our lives and behind how we feel. Things like how we dress, what cars we drive, the, 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 um, 
the, uh, the way that we speak, the way that we talk, the titles that we try to get. In fact, our desire to be accepted, catch this, is greatly, greatly determines our expectation how other people treat us. Now think about this for just a moment. Some of us will be very upset because of the way that someone else treats us, family member or coworker. And if you're honest and you kind of strip that clear, you'll find that you're upset the way you're being treated purely because it pushes against you being accepted by them. I'll tell you right now, you know this referee soccer, I'm in the middle of our soccer season right now. Let me just tell you this. If you struggle with being accepted, do not be a sports official. (laughs) And I don't know why I am because I struggle with acceptance. You know, I've done this for 40-some years of my life. I've refereed soccer, and every time I go on the field, I don't care where it is, there's this piece of me that says, I want everybody here to like me. And every single game, half of them will not like me. And it's just amazing. I referee soccer. I'm coaching the game. I got two benches. I got two coaches. And whoever's winning, the coach loves me. And as soon as it switches and they're losing, all of a sudden, I can't do anything right. And I know it. I know it to be true. Even my pregame meeting. We have a pregame meeting between coaches and players and, and captains. And my, I'll give you part of my pregame talk. We do our coin toss and things. We do the things. We got to ask them. They're all legally equipped, blah, blah, blah. Then I have my little pitch I say all the time. I say this. Now, listen, coaches, players, I guarantee today, I guarantee you today that during this game, I am going to make calls that you will not agree with, that you, will, you think are wrong. On top of that, I'm not going to make calls you're sure I should have made, which is wrong. Now, they think I'm saying them this because it will help them. I'm saying this because it helps me. And if I'm really honest, I would say, so listen, when that happens, please still like me. I don't say that, but let's be honest. When the game is done, I know people will not like the call. You never, it's never a good thing when you're leaving and the, the site administrator, the athletic director comes up and says, let me walk you to your car. That's never a good thing <laughs> because that means he has heard or she has heard something in the stand. They want to get you to the car and get you there as safe as you can. Man, I want to be loved. I want to be accepted. I try to talk to players and try to befriend them on the field, and yet they still have an attitude. Now, part of me gets a little ticked off at the attitude, like, hey, don't you know who I am? And the other part is I just like them once to look at me and say, man, I love having you as an official. Why? Accepted. Friends, I don't care who you are. I don't care what kind of front you put on. We will spend our entire lives trying to be accepted by the people in our sphere of influence. Let me share a statement with you that some of you will struggle with. Some of us believe that if we do everything just right, people will accept you. If I do everything just right, then they'll accept me. The truth is, perfect does not equal acceptance. One, perfect doesn't exist, but I'll even give you an example. Jesus was perfect. Then accept him. So stop this idea of thinking, if you get it all right, then everything will fall in place. The problem is not perfection, the problem is them. So make sure you know that. One of the great truths of the Bible, listen carefully, the moment that you say yes to Jesus Christ, the moment that you invite Jesus Christ into your life, God says, you are made completely acceptable. Nothing takes that away. One of the great truths of God's word is that when I give my life to Jesus, I am made totally and completely acceptable. Listen to this verse in Romans 
chapter 15, verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ, what? Just as he has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Jesus Christ sees you as acceptable and he accepts you. But not only does he accept you, but he chose you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 from the Living Bible. But you are not like that, for you have been chosen, catch that, by God himself. You can read the rest of it. I'll stop right there. You have been chosen. I have been chosen by God himself. Remember as a kid being chosen on the right team or being not being chosen on the right team? Remember those days? It feels good to be chosen. We love being chosen. Some of your worst nightmares in, in your whole life was being in gym class when they would pick two captains, and the two captains were always the best athletes, male or female, the best athletes, and they'd say, hey, pick your teams. And what did you wish in that? All you were hoping for is don't be last. I don't care if I'm second to the last, not just last. And the truth of it is, you don't feel really, really bad at all for the last, as long as you're not it. Because I want to be chosen last. And it feels really, really good if you get chosen not last, and it feels even better if you get chosen early on. You might be one of those people that always got to be the captain. Just so you know, we hate you. <laughs> you might have been one of those people that got chosen second or third, and we don't like you much either. Because some of you just don't know what it was like to be last, and others of you do, and you know that feeling. Isn't it good to be chosen? My wife will get mad at me sometimes. We're in a restaurant, in a busy restaurant. You put your name in. And even those moments, yeah, I don't know why it is, but you're sitting there with 20 other people waiting, and they go, Slocum, table of two. Man, I stand up and strut. <laughs> why? Because we're chosen. And if I'm really full of myself, I'll say it. Chosen. <laughs> Doesn't do well for my marriage relationship, but um, chosen. Listen, remember as a kid the things that you would do to be accepted. The things that you would do just so that you fit into the group. I told you the story before, but when my kids were little, all of my kids, but uh, I would always tell them over and over again, listen, I just want you to know that if God gave me a choice, I could choose any kid to be my daughter or any kid to be my son. I would choose you. Friends, listen, that's your story. God does get to choose God does get to choose, and he chose you. But let's be painfully honest here. Some of you have grown up with unpleasable parents. You have grown up, and 20 and 30, 40, 50 years later, you're still trying to get the acceptance of a father or a mother or some prominent figure in your life. You're still trying to earn their acceptance and their love. I got a statement for you. If you didn't get it as a child, you're not getting it now, and you don't need it. You don't need it because God says, you are acceptable to me, and nothing else matters. If God accepts me and you don't, that's your problem. That's not mine. About 15, 18, 20 years ago, there was a country western song. I forget her name, Danielle something, but she had a song that said that the title was this, Jesus loves you and I don't. So those of you who love country western music, this is the kind of music you people listen to. You can tell I don't live in that world. Jesus loves you and I don't. Let me give you a different title how I write it. Jesus loves me and it doesn't matter if you don't. See, that's what happens when you understand that God says you are made acceptable. 
Let me give you a second thing that God sees in you. God sees you as valuable. God sees you as having worth and value. God sees you as valuable. You have value. Question, how much are you worth? Some of you immediately hear how much are you worth and you're thinking your net worth. Just so you know, net worth and self-worth are two different things. Though a lot of us determine our self-worth by our net worth, we determine our worth by what we have, we determine our worth by the things that we can put in a certain column, but that's not what I'm talking about. How much are you worth? How do you determine that? Walk with me for just a moment. You may have remember I've talked about this many, many times, but I want to remind you about value. How do you judge the value of anything? I would suggest there are two things in life that determine value. The first one is this, who owns it? The second one is, what is someone willing to pay for it? The two things that determine value is who owns it, and number two, what someone's willing to pay for it. Let's talk about ownership. We all know that something owned by a celebrity is worth more than something owned by a non-celebrity. I mean, a guitar that was owned and played by Elvis is going to be far worth far more than a guitar that's playing and owned by me. A guitar, first of all, a guitar would only be owned by me, not played by me. I don't play it. It has no value. I could say, I'll sign it for you. And you would say, great, don't use permanent marker. Okay, I like to get that off of there. We all understand that. I have a baseball at home signed by Mariano Rivana, Rivera, the best closer in all of baseball, former Yankee. That's got value. Or I could say to you, hey, I'll sign a baseball for you. And you would say, yeah, just keep your baseball. Of course, most of you people would say, keep the Yankees one too. I got that. (laughs) But we understand that who owns something brings it value. The fact is it adds value to based on the owner. Okay, so who do you belong to? First John chapter four. But you, catch that first part, you belong to God. You've already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. You belong to God. Ownership brings value. A number of years ago, I was preaching this uh, message on this particular verse about ownership. I was preaching on the thought that we come to Christ, and when that happens, God owns us. We belong to him. A woman came up to the servant afterwards. She stood right here, looked at me, pointed her finger at me, and she said, no, God will never own me. And then she said this, I will not be owned by God like a dog with a collar and a leash. Man, she was angry and she stood right here and let me have it. Now, I got to be honest with you, I never even thought of a dog with a collar and a leash. It never crossed my mind when I thought about ownership that that would be the picture. But man, that was her picture. I will not be owned like a dog with a collar and a leash. And so I said to her, I said, I got to tell you, I never even thought about that, but it didn't help her. Off she went. And so later I began pondering it. And you know we have a dog. She's Kodiak. She's 14. She's getting older. She's not going to be around much longer. She's now deaf, which now she has an excuse for not listening to us before then. Before then it was just an attitude. Now she's got a reason. Uh, And her little Kodiak, she's got a collar. And if you go to get her collar to put it on her, she is beside herself with joy when she sees a collar. And if you put her collar on, it has a little tag that says Kodiak Slocum. Now, I still laugh at that. To this day, all these years later, I laugh when we call the vet or whatever, and they say, well, it's your dog's name. I say Kodiak. I think, oh, Kodiak Slocum. I mean, because we don't call her Kodiak Slocum, but they view her as, well, she's part of your family. Kodiak Slocum. When you put her collar on, she acts like she loves belonging to the Slocum family. 
And when her collar is on, and when you look at that name tag, which says Kodiak Slocum, it says this, I am loved, I am fed, I am played with, I am safe, I am protected, and I am cared for, and I belong to them. Friends, if that's what it means to belong to God, and if that's what the collar says, put a collar on me and put a tag on there that says God's child. I am fed, I am loved, I am cared for, I belong to him. When you belong to him, that means you have value. How much is your house worth? Let's go to the next one. How much is your house worth? Let's talk about what someone's willing to pay for it. You go, I think it's worth 400,000. Do you have a check for 400,000? You know, when you put something out there on eBay to for sale or you put on, the, uh, on Facebook or you put a garage sale sign up front, you put a price tag on something and you say, this is what I think it's worth. But at the end of the day, what it's worth? It's worth what someone paid you for it. So years ago, Diane's dad has now gone home to be with Jesus. But when I was coming into the family, we were dating. We weren't married yet. And Diane's dad collected rocks, actually a thing called agates. And in Minnesota, there'd be Lake Superior agates. These are a particular type of stone. And if you polish them up, they shine. They're just gorgeous. And he would collect them. Gravel pit, they'd walk on Sundays and pick them. So he had jars and jars of these beautiful agates he'd polish. And so lunch, Sunday lunch is getting ready. And he said, hey, come out in the basement with me. So I'm down in the basement. And he's showing me his jars of rocks. And he goes, yeah, I got rocks. And it's like, woo, you know, yeah, like, woo, nice. And then he grabs one. He's got one about this big, about the size of a softball, bigger than a softball. And he hands that to me. He says, look at that. It's red and it's, it's rock. He goes, you like it? Yeah. Wish I had one. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a rock. That rock he sold a couple years later for $6,000. Rock that he found in the gravel pit. A rock that you pick up, look at, and go, that's a rock, $6,000. In fact, a collector bought it. And you can now look it up, and that rock is called the Burgess Agate, named after him. You see, it had no value to me. It had great value to someone who knew what they were looking at. And see, value is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. So here's my question for you. So how much are you worth? Well, what's the price tag for your head? 1 Corinthians 7.23, God paid a high price for you. God paid a high price for you, so don't be enslaved to the world. Don't get caught up in how they view you or think about you because you have value. God paid a high price for you. Add into that Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve others, look what it says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you, my friend, are one of the many that he paid that price for. You were bought with a price, and Jesus paid that price. Want to know your value? Look at the cross. Ever having a moment in your life where you're thinking, ah, I'm worthless, or you feel worthless? Just stop and remember your value and look at the cross to get there because that's the price that was paid for you. You have value. Let me give you a third thing the Bible says about you, that God says about you. He says, I look at you and I see that you are absolutely lovable. Absolutely lovable which is really important, especially when you have been rejected by someone or hurt or abandoned by someone. Because when somebody walks away from us, when somebody rejects us, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a husband or a wife, a divorce, unfaithfulness, the one thing you don't feel is lovable. 
When somebody walks away from you, when someone deliberately is unfaithful to you, man, that is a dagger to the heart, and you don't feel lovable. If you're ever feeling that way, now listen carefully, if you're ever feeling that way, don't believe your feelings. You can't trust your feelings. Listen to this passage from Isaiah 54:10. The mountains and the hills may crumble, but my love for you will never end. I will keep forever my promise of peace, so says the Lord who loves you. The mountains and the hills may crumble. You can come home from work and talk to your spouse. I can come home and talk to Diane, and she might say, how'd your day go? And I say, oh, the whole world fell apart today. Really? The whole world fell apart today. Really? What that means is I had a bad day here and there. But according to this verse, God says, the whole world could fall apart. I mean, imagine if you would, the catastrophic day it would be when Mount Mansfield blows up and it doesn't exist. We would say, that's a bad day. And God would say, bad days don't affect my love for you. My bad days don't affect my love for you. Your bad days don't affect my love for you. You see, God's love is consistent and it is constant. His loving you and his showing his love for you is not based upon him having a good day or a bad day and it's not based on you having a good day or bad day. It's consistent and constant. His love for you never changes. And just so you know, not only does his love for you never change, but he's in love with you and that never changes. Unlike our love, God's love is unconditional. We try we know, I, we know unconditional love is the standard we try to get to, but let's be honest, we just don't pull it off. Our love for one another is so contingent upon measuring up. I love you because you love me back, but if you don't love me back, I don't love you. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. I mean, you know how it goes. We try for unconditional love and we can't pull it off. You make me feel good, so then I love you back, whatever. It's all conditional. God says, I just love you, period. I love you all the time, period, all the time, never stops, no matter what. Friends, in your worst moment, you never have to wonder if God still loves you, because he does. God loves you today, and it's not based on your behavior, which is really good, because on some days, our behavior is really bad, and we know it. Some of you are coming off a bad behavior morning. Some of you are coming off a bad behavior night last night. And you know how bad your behavior can be. Some of you can look back a week or a month or go, man, my behavior is so messed up. Yep, God loves you despite that behavior. You're lovable. And don't forget that. You see, God changes us by changing the way that we think. Let me give you a fourth thing that God believes about you when he looks at you. He sees you and he goes, oh, forgivable. God sees you as forgivable. As often as you blow it, I'll take you out. As often as I blow it, good to know God sees me as forgivable. As often as we get it wrong, it's a good thing to remember. And have you heard about the guy from Grand Isle? He lived in Grand Isle. He was driving home from Burlington. He's on his way. He ran out of gas. He parked his car on the side of the road, forgot to set the emergency brake, looked back, and had slipped off to the edge, rolled down, hit one of those stone embankment things, smashed the car. He's walking home. He doesn't live too far, a couple miles away. He starts pouring a thunder lightning storm. He gets just inside, just in sight of his house and sees lightning hit it and the whole thing goes to blaze. And he sits there and he goes, God, why? And a voice from heaven said, well, this, I just don't like you. <laughs> oh, God, why? Well, I'll give you a list of things you've done. 
It's a made-up story. Remember that, please. Made-up story. <laughs> some of you thought it was true, and so now some of you are thinking God actually thinks that. He doesn't think that. And please know, God does not operate that way. Um, but let's really be honest here. You ever had bad things happen to you and find yourself saying, oh, God, Why? you ever have bad things and I've been around pastoring long enough to talk to a lot of Christians that will have a bad thing go and say God what have I done what have I done that you're doing what have I done that you're doing this to me you think to yourself what did I do that God would let this happen God does not operate in that way if he did not one of us would be here we'd all be done Isaiah 43 verse 25 and yet I am the God who forgives your sins and I do this because of who I am, and I will not hold your sins against you. Now, listen very carefully to this next statement. If you ever hear God whispering in your ear, so you blew it again. If you ever hear God saying, man, you never get it right. You ever hear God saying, man, what a miserable failure of a Christian you are. Good enough. You're not good enough. If you ever hear God saying that in your ear, listen carefully, it's not God. That is the evil one. That is Satan whispering in your ear. It is not God. That is not how God works. God does not remind you of your past failures. You catch that? God does not remind you. God does not replay your past failures. God forgets them. The moment you give them to him, he forgets them. Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not punish us for all of our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. What a great verse for all sinners, which means it's your verse and mine. That when I blow it, God takes that sin and it's forgotten. How far is the east from the west? That's how far he forgets it. So listen, when you have these moments where you're feeling to yourself like, ah, I'm just worthless, that was horrible, look what I did, blah, blah, blah. My question I have for you is this. How does the thinking that says, how, why is God getting even with me? Why is God punishing me? How does that thought match up with the verse that says, I, I don't hold you accountable for your sins. I forgive them. I release them. How does those two things square up? They don't. So stop thinking like that. Let me give you a statement that you can write down. Put it on your desk. Put it on your phone. Put it on your computer. It's a real simple statement. It says this. I am forgivable. And God loves to forgive. I'm forgivable. And God loves to forgive. Let me give you the last one. We'll get done here. The last thing God thinks about you, the last way that God sees you, God sees you as capable. You are capable to get through the day. You are capable to get through the trying time that you're in. You are capable to succeed. You are capable to be trusted. You are capable to lead. You are capable to serve. You are capable. God believes that about you, and God believes in you. Our last passage for the day, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things which he has called me to do through him who strengthens and empowers me to fulfill his purpose. I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. 
I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses me with inner strength and competent peace. You are worth investing in, and God is investing in you. You know, the Bible tells us that the most precious thing to God that he has is his church. The church of Jesus Christ, it's his bride. This thing that he loves is the church. And guess who he has taken the church and entrusted it to? Us. God trusts you with his church. You are worth investing in. And he will give you the strength and he will see you through whatever it is you face. And he'll give you the power to do that with power and with confidence. So there you have it. God sees you as acceptable. God sees you as valuable. He sees you as lovable. He sees you as forgivable. He sees you as capable. Now here's the key. Start filling your mind with what God says and what God thinks about you. And watch the power of God's grace heal your wounded heart. When you begin to think about yourself the way that God thinks about you, it will change you. It may not be immediate, though my, my, my experience has been it is fairly immediate. But through the process of time, when you continue to think about yourself the way that God thinks about you, that's how God changes us, by changing the way that we think, by the renewing of our mind through his Holy Spirit. Let me wrap up. There are billions of people, now listen to this, there are billions of people in this world who, if they knew you, would have an opinion about you. Right? Billions of people. When I walk in the soccer field, there's 100 people that have an opinion about me. Billions of people, if they knew you, would have an opinion about you. But the opinion of one is all that matters. And that's him. So then why is it that some of us are so wrapped up about the opinion of other people? Well, he thinks this or he did that. One matters. You say, I have to tell you, this is so revolutionary that when you begin to land in this world of thinking about yourself the way that God thinks about you, other people just won't matter. Their opinion, their treatment, it just won't matter. When you believe, finally begin to believe what God believes about you, not only will your heart heal, but the opinions of the billions just won't matter. I don't think you realize how powerful this is. I don't think you realize how revolutionary God's grace is when you begin to think the way that he thinks. Let me give you a closing story, and uh, maybe you've heard this story, might remember it through time. Professor of homiletics. Homiletics professor is a guy who teaches preachers how to preach. Professor of, hom professor of homiletics, he and his wife are vacationing in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. He's in a restaurant, he's in a diner, he's having a meal, they're in the middle of the meal, and an old man comes by their table and says hello to them, and says, are you enjoying your meal? You know, yeah, they are, and uh, are, you, are, are you on vacation here, or are you visiting, are you enjoying Tennessee, and so you, are you, do you live in the area? And have you ever had conversations with somebody while you're eating, and you just want to eat? You know, I mean, I've been there, where, you know, you have a fork in your hand with food, and they're having a conversation and you want to say to them, can you not see food in my hand right now? And they just talk as if they're oblivious to it. And so he asked them, he said, you know, say, no, we're on vacation here. Oh, you're on vacation. So what do you do for a living? The old man says. 
So the guy plays a card, which I confess I've played as a pastor, and that is that sometimes you just want to get rid of people. You just got to tell them what you do for a living. And so this guy teaches preaching. So he goes, well, I am, I am a professor at a seminary, you know, Bible college. I teach people how to preach. I've done that. What do you do for a living? I'm a minister. I'm a priest. I judge people's sins, you know, so that they go, I'm out of here. See you. Take care. You know, I, I'm not proud of it. I'm not proud of it. But, you know, sometimes you play the card. So he says, I'm a, I teach preaching, thinking that will scare the guy. And the guy goes, oh, you're a preacher. Let me tell you a preacher story. And pulls out a chair and sits down with him. So they're, they're, in, they're in for it now. He goes, let me tell you a story, he said. So the old man sits down, tells him a story. He said, you need to know when I was young, I was an illegitimate child. My, uh, my mother got pregnant, father left us, didn't have anything to do with it. I don't even, never knew who my dad even was. And uh, small town, and it was pretty bad, and it was pretty hard on me. Um, no dad that I even knew of, couldn't even tell you who it was. Kids called me names, made fun of me. Um, it bothered me. And we lived in a small town, so everybody knew my story. Everyone knew who I was, couldn't escape it. Never went to church. My mom never went to church. And yet, some buddies and pe- friends talked about the small church in town had a new pastor, and apparently he was really good. He goes, I couldn't believe it. I'm a teenager, and I found myself going to church one Sunday. And the guy was mesmerizing. And he said, so I found myself going back because what he said, I, I felt good. He said, so I'd go back. But he said, I never went on time. I always came in late, and I always left early. I didn't want to be stuck having to answer or talk to people. So I'd wait till it was pretty time to preach. I'd sneak in, then I'd slip out. He said, one Sunday, I was so mesmerized by what he was saying that I found out that he, had, he was done preaching. He said, amen, and I hadn't got up to leave. And now I'm stuck. He said, I'm in the center aisle trying to get out, and it's packed full of people. And he said, oh, I'll just get through this. And then I felt a hand on my shoulder, a heavy hand. Whoever it was had grabbed my shoulder. I turned around and looked, he said, and it was the pastor. And the pastor, he says these words, and the pastor looked at me and said to me, so who are you, son? What's your name, boy? Who's your family? Who's your daddy? Where's your daddy? Who is he? And he said, when I heard those words, I was terrified. And then before I could say anything, he said this, wait a minute, I know who you are. And he said, and now I felt worse. So he knew me. He knew my story. My heart sank. He said, I know who you are. I know your family. I know whose son you are. In fact, I can see the family resemblance. And with that, he turned me to look at him head on. And he said, you are a son of God, aren't you? He said, I know your daddy. Your daddy is the God Almighty. That's who you are. You're the son of the Heavenly Father. And that old man at that dining table looked at this couple and said this. And in that moment, those wonderful, powerful words changed my life. And with that, He said, I hope you enjoy your meal and hope you enjoy Tennessee. And he got up and he walked away. And they sat there eating their meal, trying to figure out what exactly happened when the waitress came over and said, so 
I saw you having a conversation. Did you enjoy your talk? And they said, well, yeah. I said, do you know who that was? And they said, we have no idea. He said, well, you're talking to Ben Hooper, two-time governor of Tennessee. And she said this, he's got quite a story, doesn't he? And they went, yeah, he does. And I would say to you, and that's your story. You got it? His story is your story. You belong to him. I know who your daddy is. Your daddy is the God Almighty. You're the son of the Heavenly Father. What does it matter to you what someone else says about you? What does it matter to you how someone else treats you, what they think about you? You belong to him. And I'll go back to my little dog. I'll get your name tag if you want. This is you belong to him. You are fed. You are cared for. You are loved. Nothing else matters. Stand, please. That's how God heals wounded hearts. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the truth that we even see in the pictures, the stories. A guy named Ben Hooper, whose story is ours. The story we see from creation, from nature, that reminds us that we have value, that we have worth. I pray specifically as we close for the person who either walked in here needing, desperately needing to hear these words, or perhaps didn't even know it until they heard them. And they began to fight back a tear. Might they know how you see them and what you think about them. And may that change their lives. And for all of us, may we be encouraged by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.